Let's have a word of quick word of prayer and then we'll begin, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessings to us this day. Thank you for the salvation we enjoy through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study this gospel, which lays out uh, the salvation we enjoy through your Son extremely well for us. So we pray that we'll be encouraged and challenged as we study this book and that we'll be helped and benefited as we seek to serve you in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are looking at our memory verse, John 3, 18. If everybody... Uh, uh, let's see, that was the one we had this week, right? John 3, 18? Yeah, okay. So let's try that together. Whoever believes in him is not... Con I don't hear much people. <laughs> don't sound like you did much memorization. All right, let's say it together anyway. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So again, a good verse about the state, our natural state, as we come into the world, we don't have to do anything uh, to be under condemnation. We're born that way, unfortunately, because we're descendants of Adam. And until we believe, we stand in condemnation. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. And that's what we have as Christians. We are declared righteous and we're no longer condemned. All right, um, so we are looking at uh, John chapter 4, <clears throat> as you remember from last time. And uh, this is the public ministry of Jesus. See there, early belief in, Gal in Samaria and Galilee, and we're looking at Samaria, and then we'll see the, uh, noble, the uh, ruler, the royal ru ruler, uh, in the latter part. Um, so we're looking at the interview with the woman of Samaria. And we got started on that. We saw this, the, the setting of that. Um, so where are we at here? We are, um, and I should have gotten my pointer up bigger, but uh, we are um, here in Samaria and Galilee. We're in John 4, between John 4 and 5 down here, Samaria and Galilee, uh, Samaria, uh, Samaria and Cana, I'm sorry, Samaria and Cana. So we're in Samaria now. Jesus was in Jerusalem, remember, and he said he's, they decided to go to Galilee because of the opposition he was facing. Remember, he got started getting opposition, and the, and the religious rulers, religious leaders were opposing him, and uh, so he decides he's going to go to Galilee. Galilee is, uh, obviously Jews were there, but it's more of a, it's less Jewish. It's more Gentile kind of area. There are Jewish cities and places, but there's a lot of Gentile influence there. So the religious leaders in Jerusalem don't have as much influence there. And so G Jesus is freer there with his ministry in Galilee. And as we said, in the Synoptic Gospels, the other three Gospels, they concentrate a lot, mostly, just on that Galilean ministry of Jesus. But John has a lot about the Judean ministry, as we'll see. We've already seen Jesus there already, and we'll see him going back there in John chapter 5 again. So the setting is, he says, I've got to go through uh, Samaria. And he's traveling through Samaria, remember? And there he uh, stops midday, about noon, you remember, and he comes to the well, Jacob's well, as it's called. And he's, you know, uh, thirsty and so forth. And so his disciples go into town uh, from the well and to get some uh, food, remember. So he's left alone. And uh, uh, as we assume all of them went. Uh, most of them went or all of them went. Um, so he sees this Samaritan woman who's come to draw water at the well. And he asks her, will you give me a drink of water? Remember that? And, uh, you know, she's surprised because Jews and Samaritans didn't 
really have much in common. They were at, they were at each other's, uh, they were in opposition to each other. Remember, we said that the Samaritans were a people that came into being because uh, when, the Jew, when the Jews were taken into captivity, uh, in the Assyrian captivity, uh, the Jews that were left intermarried with people that were brought in by the Assyrians to live there. So they were part Gentile, part Jewish, but they adopted the Jewish religion with some other things thrown in a little bit. And the Jews considered them, the Jewish people when they came back, Nehemiah, Ezra, and so forth, uh, they, they didn't consider the religion they were practicing as true Judaism, true to the Old Testament. And the Samaritans uh, had their, they only accepted the Pentateuch, you remember. They had made some changes in the Pentateuch. Uh, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim, remember? And the, ultimately when the Jews got in control, they destroyed that temple. So there's this hostility, a lot of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. So G Jesus goes there. He asks this woman for some water, and she's amazed, you know, that you're a Jew and you're talking to me. You know, a woman. You're a Samaritan. And you remember, you know, um, Jesus says, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for this drink, uh, you could have asked him, and he'd give you living water. <laughs> and she takes. You have these double meanings in John. A lot of double meanings are what's called double entendre. That is, remember anothen back there in John 3, born from above, born again. Now you've got this living water. Well, to her, that means uh, fresh water, running water from a spring, just r running rather than from a well that could be contaminated. But he's not talking about that, is he? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, ultimately. Regeneration, being born again. So um, they have this conversation and, and, uh, about the, the water. And uh, she says, well, give me this water. I, I want this. And so Jesus begins to deal with her where we all have to deal with people. When people, when, people, when we try, when we... Uh, man I, whose ministry I was saved on used to say to me, he said, you've got to get a person lost before you get them saved. You've got to get them lost before you get, get them saved. And that is a problem with some um, ways people evangelize. Uh, there is kind of a, a system where you're just going, would you like to go to heaven? Well, who wouldn't want it? Yeah, okay. Well, if you will believe in Jesus, you'll trust Jesus. If you'll say this prayer, you'll go to heaven. Well, You've got to realize why you need this first, that you're lost. We're all lost. We're condemned. We're sinners. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Before he can really offer her this living water, she's got to realize, hey, <laughs> you are a sinner. And so he talks about, hey, call your husband. So he's dealing with her sexual sin, her sexual immorality apparently here. He's calling her to recognize her sinful condition before he can really get her to see her need for this living water, this gift of life. And so he ends there, you remember, in verse 17 uh, and 18, he tells her, you know, you're right. When she, she said, I don't have any husband. She said, well, you're right about that. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband, remember? And so that brings us then to, uh, that's where we're talking about here. Mount Gerizim is up there, the mountain we're seeing. And this is Sychar. This is a village down below there, close to the Old Testament town of Shechem. And that's where Jesus is at. And so we come to uh, verse 19. We, we actually looked at this last week, but I'm just kind of repeating here what we said here so we can get the context. Remember, uh, he asked her about her condition, her marriages, her men, and she seems to sort of, I think, maybe divert him from <laughs> pursuing that line because she says, hey, I see you're a prophet. Notice verse 19. And so she brings up this question of the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Where's the proper place for worship? Because remember Moses, when he's giving the Pentateuch, he says, when you come into the land, God will, will establish a central sanctuary. He'll establish a place where you're to worship. No other place. Remember, one of the problems with Jews in the Old Testament is all these places of worship throughout the land. They created these 
sanctuaries, these high places and stuff like that. That was all wrong and incorrect. But kings did that. All kinds of people did that. Uh, There's only supposed to be one central place of worship. And ultimately, it's Jerusalem. We don't really get that until we get to the time of David and Solomon, remember, when the ark is brought into Jerusalem and so forth. And that becomes the central place of worship. And so she, uh, she brings up this question, well, listen, you Jews say uh, there's this place, worship in Jerusalem, but you know our ancestors worshiped on Mount Gerizim. That's where our ancestors say. And... Uh, I mentioned here Deuteronomy where God said, where Moses said, you know, you've got to, uh, God's going to uh, select a place and so forth. And uh, the Samaritan version, as I mentioned here, uh, the Pentateuch says, the place your God has chosen. Well, they had changed the Old Testament scriptures from the place God will choose to the place God has chosen, suggesting that God's already chosen this, and that's the place where Abraham had this altar at the, you know, here at Shechem that overlooks Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans uh, still say that today. I was just reading an article uh, just the other day about the Samaritans. There was an article, I forgot where it was at, but uh, you know, I mentioned before there are, there are Samaritans still here today. Uh, there's no more than 800 Samaritans in the world, apparently. They live here around Mount Gerizim, and they live in Tel Aviv, some of them. And uh, the problem they've had in recent times is inbreeding. There's so few of them. And uh, they haven't, been, they haven't uh, had enough women to go around. There have been fewer girls. And so uh, they decided, the Samaritan religious leaders decided, we're going to allow... Uh, we're going to allow some non-Samaritan women to come in and marry Samaritan men. And they got some from Ukraine <laughs> and some other places. As long as they would convert, they, they, and they got some Jewish women too, as long as they'd convert to, Samaritan, to the Samaritan religion, they came in and they have intermarried with some Samaritan men to try to make the gene pool bigger <laughs> and try to create some more people for the Samaritans. And so there's very few of them today here. But they still claim Mount Gerizim. And I didn't show pictures, but I've got pictures of they celebrate the Passover on Mount Gerizim. They kill the animals and so forth. They do this every year and so forth. So there is this hostility, and Jesus is recognizing that. Notice verse 21. Uh, the woman replied, uh, Jesus, woman Jesus replied, because she brings up this question about where is the proper place of worship? Is it Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus says, hey, listen, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, that's quite an amazing statement because <laughs> we're still in really in the kind of the, we're in, we're in a transitional period, but, you know, anybody would say, as far as we know right now, Jerusalem is the central sanctuary. That's it. But Jesus says, hey, wait a minute. This is coming to an end. We're coming to a new age when uh, we won't have a central place of worship. Uh, anymore. So uh, he says the time is coming, you know, a time is, I'm sorry, a time is coming. This is a reference probably to his, his death and resurrection. And then we enter what we call the New Testament age, the age of grace, the, you know, the start of the church age that at, at Pentecost, we enter this new age where we're not concerned about the exact place of worship. We can worship anywhere. It doesn't make any difference. We don't have to go to a central sanctuary. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, Jesus says. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. I say here, in spite of the fact that the exact place of proper worship will no longer be significant, Jesus insists that true salvation comes from the Jews, not the Samaritans. The Samaritans as a religious group were wrong. They worship what they do not know. That is, the object of their worship is in fact unknown to them. They stand outside the stream of God's revelation so that what they worship cannot possibly be characterized by truth and knowledge. So, in contrast, the Jews in Jesus' day 
in spite of their problems, in spite of all their difficulties, uh, they knew the object of their worship. They were in the stream of God's revelation. They had the truth. They were worshiping the true God in Jesus' day. Uh, but once Jesus comes, dies on the cross, now salvation is no longer from the Jews. You can't look to the Jews for salvation. Uh, why is that? Because Jews don't worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the true God, the true God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And any religion that doesn't recognize that is false. So Judaism, whatever we may think about it, is a false religion. John will say later in, later in his letter, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So anybody who denies, Jehovah's Witnesses are false. They deny the Son of God. They deny that He is equal with God. Islam is wrong. I'm just sorry to tell you that, you know, but every religion that denies that Jesus is the Son of God with all that that means, you know, equal with God, a member of the Trinity. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And the problem is the Jews don't acknowledge Jesus. Islam doesn't. They acknowledge Jesus as a prophet, but they deny his virgin birth, they deny his death, and so forth. Uh, Judaism denies all that too. They see him as a real human being, a real historical figure, but they deny him as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So there's no hope for people, you know, there's no other name <laughs> under heaven whereby, you know, you can be saved. That's it. It's, it's Jesus and all that that implies about him. Um, notice verse 23. Yet a time is coming, Jesus says, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. I say, however, a time is coming when Jews will lose their privileged position. In fact, the time of true worship is here, now and through the person and ministry of Jesus. So the work of Christ on earth made more direct worship possible. We don't have to go through an ironic priesthood. We don't have to do that. We can go directly to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are believer priests. The priesthood of the believers, one of the essential doctrines of Christians. I say with the coming of Christ, the distinction between worship, true worshipers and false worshipers will not be determined by the physical location where one worships. Because God is spirit, the, true, the place of, of worship will not be tied to one physical location, that is Jerusalem. Drew, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, where God is spirit. So genuine true worship can only be accomplished by those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Only people regenerated by the Spirit, Holy Spirit can worship. So that's, that's the reason why we have our worship service at 930. Did you know that? That's the reason we have it at 930. We don't have it as a second service. Why is that? Well, because unbelievers can't really truly worship. Now, we welcome unbelievers to come to our 930 service. That's fine. We hope they come, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But that service is not created for them. That's the problem with the seeker service model that many use. They're trying to attract unbelievers to their worship service. That's really a, a false kind of concept. We want, we would, we're really, we really have that second service to try to attract unbelievers to that. There's no worship necessarily involved for them. They come, they sit, they hear the gospel, they hear the presentation. That's what we're trying to do with that second service. Now, if they come to the first service, I'm saying that's fine, it's wonderful, it's, it's fine to invite them, and many people have come and been saved, you know, but that service is not designed for them. It's designed for people who have ever been regenerated and can worship by the Holy Spirit. 
Notice the identity of the Messiah, 425 through 26. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So I said, the the Samaritans believed in a messianic figure whom they call the Tahib, meaning he who returns or he who restores. The Samaritan Messiah was thought of primarily as a teacher. Remember, she says, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus directly tells her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He directly declares he is the Messiah to this Samaritan woman. Something that he refrained from doing among his own people. Now, why would that be? Probably because they had a wrong view of the Messiah. They they attached all kinds of military, political baggage to the term. They thought the Messiah is coming. He's going to be a political and military ruler. He's going to kick out the, the, the Romans and we're going to be ruling and all that kind of stuff. Well, that kingdom is coming, as we know, but it's not this time. And so, but to her, where there's no danger of misinterpretation in that sense, she says, this Messiah you're looking for, I'm he, she says. I am the Messiah. I am the Tahib that you've been looking for. Jesus preferred to call himself the Son of Man among his own people. Remember, that's that messianic term from Daniel 7. So he could explain what that means. The Son of Man is like this. The Son of Man, he tried to explain the true significance of this messianic coming, his first coming. But what are the results here, 427 through 42? To the woman first. Just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? The disciples, I say, were shocked that Jesus would be carrying on a conversation with a woman, particularly a Samaritan woman. Some Jewish rabbis felt that for a man to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion from the true study of the Torah. And so it's really kind of funny when you read what the rabbis say. Now, don't get mad at me, okay? I'm just telling you what the rabbis said here. Ladies, don't get mad at me. My wife's at home. She's still not quite. So don't get mad at me, honey, because I'm just, I'm just putting up here what the rabbis say. Look, they said, uh, let, thy, let thy house be opened wide and let the needy be thy household and talk, mu- talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife, how much more of his fellow's wife. Hence the sages have said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and, the, and at the last will inherit Gehenna. Can you believe this? <laughs> now that's from the, what's called the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, which is you know, the Jewish oral law written down. So that was the view uh, that you know, his disciples are amazed that you know, he'd be talking to a woman and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Why would you be doing that kind of thing? That's, that's just unbelievable. Um, so... Um, so they didn't ask, you know, what do you want? Or, you know, Jesus, why are you talking to her? They didn't, but they were amazed. 28, then, then leaving her water, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, we're not told why the woman left her water jar, either out of haste or simply out of courtesy, so Jesus might have some water remarkably, This confrontation with Jesus has caused her to lose any shame she might have had to run and tell the people in the town the good news. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So apparently the people were so impressed by her words, they came out, you know, to Jacob's well to see, is this really this Messiah that we have been waiting for? Verse uh, 31 through 38, we see to the disciples here. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know know nothing about. So the returning disciples urged Jesus to eat. However, he was apparently dwelling on the conversation he had just had 
with the Samaritan woman. And he decides to use this circumstance to teach his followers something about his own priorities. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Verse 33, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the disciples think Jesus is speaking of literal food in verse 32 when he says, uh, I have food to eat. Uh, But Jesus quickly corrects their thinking. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. So in dealing with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his father's will. And there was greater satisfaction, greater sustenance, we might say, in that than any food the disciples could ultimately bring him. So the work that Jesus must finish, I've got to finish the work, is the work of redemption, which is coming. You know, his time is coming, and he'll have to finish that, he will finish that work of redemption. Don't you have a saying, Jesus says to his disciples, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, it's difficult to know if we are to understand Jesus' statement, uh, four months and then the harvest, as the Proverbs are literally. I mean, is this December? It could be December, and he's just saying, you know, you say, you've been saying, there's four months and then come harvest. The harvest is coming in four months. That could be, you know, what he's saying, you know. But he's going to say, listen, there's a sense in which there is a harvest right now, you know, get to. But it could be, or it could be just a proverb that there's four months and then come a harvest. What does that mean? Well, it's like, uh, it's like you say, you know, somebody say, Rome was not built in a day. You know, somebody might want to do a project. And somebody would say, well, listen, this is, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is going to take some time. You know, it's going to, it's going to take a long time. And so what, what a saying like that suggests patience, waiting. Don't get ahead of yourself, you know, that kind of thing. It could be that, that Jesus is saying, you're, too, you're waiting. Uh, the point is, Jesus' point is, either way, on the spiritual plane, the harvest has already begun. It's not four months. The harvest has already begun. He's already engaged in the harvest. What he, what he did with this Samaritan woman, her salvation, that's the harvest. The harvest has already begun. Um, and that's part and parcel of the work the Father has given him to do. Remember, I want to, I'm doing the will of the Father. I want to finish the work. This is part of the work, this harvest. Uh, Verse That wasn't primarily his mission on earth. His primary work was to make, make it possible for us to do the harvesting, you know. But still, he was harvesting even then. He was winning people to himself even then. Verse 36. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. I say already the reapers of the spiritual harvest in Samaria have begun as demonstrated by the fact they're drawing wages. What does that mean? Well, people are being saved. There's a harvest. We see the wages, this Samaritan woman. People are being saved right here. I say, and whereas a harvest of grain would provide physical nourishment, this harvest has eternal consequences, eternal life, life in the lives of those who believe. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So they just as the reaper must never forget that the harvest they enjoy is the fruit of another's labor. So the disciples must not forget that others like Jesus, the prophets, John the Baptist, they've labored to prepare the soil and plant the seed. And that's true for us, too, you know. Uh, We reap what others have sown, oftentimes. You know, people who are saved in this church, when I hear their stories, you know, I hear about so many things in their past life, you know. This person, I was influenced by this person with the gospel, but I just, you know, 
there were all these influences, you know, and then they came to our church and we reaped, <laughs> we harvested. But a lot of people, you know, had an influence in their lives. A lot of churches, other churches may have had influences in their lives, you know, and so forth. We just never know, you know. We have people who come here, they hear the gospel. It may be somebody else is going to harvest, you know, in years to come. We don't know. We just have to be faithful to share the gospel with those who come here and those we are in contact with. So now we look at the Samaritans here. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he prayed two days. Excuse me, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So initially the Samaritans believed because of the testimony of the woman, which is a good thing. But when Jesus himself ministered in the city, many more believed. The Samaritans are now convinced he is the Tahib, the Messiah, which is demonstrated by the fact they ask a Jew to stay with them two days. So their faith now is not dependent on the testimony of another, but on their personal experience, of course, with Jesus. And they say this not to disparage the woman, you know, not to disparage her testimony, but to confirm it. You know, we believed, but now we, we believe because we actually saw the Messiah. We saw the Tahib. We talked with him. Uh, they have heard for themselves, and they judge her witness, you know, to be true and genuine. So if the Jewish Messiah is the Tahib, then he's the savior of the world, not just the Jews. The Messiah, the, the Jews thought the Messiah was coming for them. And whatever he was going to do, he was doing for them. Uh, the, the, the Samaritans believed in their Messiah was coming for them. But this Messiah is coming for every people, not just Jews, but also Samaritans, every other kind of people. He is the savior of the world, all ethnic groups, all nationalities, all people. All right, so we're looking at this faith in Samarita, Samar uh, Samaria and uh, in Cana, we said, and that brings us to the healing of the royal son in Galilee. So Jesus is going through Samaria. Uh, Samaria. He stops there stays a couple days there, and then he heads on north to Galilee. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Remember at the Passover festival, he was there, and, he, and John says he did a number of miracles at the Passover festival. Um, so Jesus has left Samaria, and now he's coming into Galilee, and he's going to come to Cana, which he has visited before. So I say here, after his two days of Samaria, Jesus resumes his journey that he began in verse 3. That is, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he's this opposition to him, he decides to go back to Galilee. He had been there for the marriage at Cana. Uh, and when he arrives in Galilee, where we are told in a proverb that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus is honored as a prophet in Samaria, but not his own care country. Jewish territory, that is Judea and Galilee. Now remember I said Galilee had more Gentiles and all that influence, but still Jewish territory nonetheless. But how can Jesus say here that a prophet has no honor in his own country, which is Galilee, apparently, and then, and then say that he is welcomed in Galilee? After two days he left 
when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, as we'll see, they welcomed him because of all he had done in Jerusalem. They, they welcomed him because they saw this miracle worker. Hey, this miracle worker we saw in Galilee, they welcomed him because they welcomed him because of the miracles he did, not because he was the true Jewish Messiah. Uh, now, what we'll see in the next few verses is their initial, their faith here of these Galileans, most of them, is faith based on miracles. You know, they were excited about miracles. They came because of miracles. And you can see that. You can see it in modern day charismatic Pentecostalism, you know, miracle crusades, healing crusades. I mean, people come there who are not Christians at all, but they're just desperate. I mean, you've you got to have sympathy for people who are just told they have no, nothing the doctors can do. They come there looking for something, some miracle or something, you know. It's not necessarily because they're great believers in Jesus or they're looking for, you know, if you, if you ever heard the conversation with these people, they're looking for miracles. And uh, that's not true of the Samaritans. There, Jesus was honored. <laughs> they accepted him as the genuine Messiah. But here, as we'll see, it's faith based on miracles. Notice this. Uh, a miracle and the growth of faith. Faith based on signs and wonders. Verse 46. Once, he visited, once more he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. I say here, Jesus began his Galilean ministry at Cana. It was there that he had previously performed his first miracle, changing the water into wine. Now Jesus encounters a royal official. Now the word translated royal official refers to an officer of the king. And as you can see here by the color of uh, Galilee there, this color here, this is Antipas. This is one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas. Remember Herod divided up his territory among three of his sons. One of them, however, was removed by Augustus for misrule, and that's where we get Samaria and Judea down here governed by uh, governors. But uh, originally this area here was Archelaus until 86. But at the time of Jesus, we've got governors like Pontius Pilate here. But up here we've got Herod Antipas, one of uh, Herod's sons, who had officially the title the Tetrarch of Galilee. The Tetrarch is a lesser title than king, but uh, he is often called king. You know, he liked to call himself king. And in the New Testament, in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, he is often called king. He is King Herod and so forth. Uh, you know, he's, he's probably a Jew. This, oh, who is this royal official, I was going to say? This royal official, we don't know. He doesn't say what his ethnicity is. He's working for Herod Antipas, probably a Jew. And he had been at Jerusalem, probably at the Passover, when Jesus was there. And that's how he, you know, comes in or wants to have contact with Jesus. Notice verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in, in Galilee from Judea, so he knew something about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles or seen the miracles Jesus had done. He went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Notice verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So you see it's this, this sort of faith based on signs and wonders. Signs, two different words for miracles. Apparently the official begged Jesus to come and heal his son out of desperation without much thought as to whom Jesus truly is. All he is concerned about is that he knows Jesus can heal. There's no genuine faith on the official's part at this time, apparently. And this leads Jesus to address him and the Galileans at large as, You people. You people. You will never believe. You, you people, that is you, that is you people will never believe unless you see these miraculous signs and these wonders. Uh, so this shows that you know, again, Jesus welcomed in verse 45 where the Galileans welcomed him, as I previously mentioned, was based plainly, mainly on miracles. We love 
to see these miracles and we'd like to have some of these, so we're welcoming Jesus. Now, as we'll see later on in this gospel, especially in John chapter 6, where it comes out explicitly, those who base their faith on miracles will quickly fall away. That is, if it's just, we're, 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 we want to be around Jesus because he does these miracles. If we don't see these miracles, we're, he- we're gone. You know, we're, we're just, we're heading out, you know. And we'll see that in John 6 especially, but we won't turn there now. But then we see faith based, faith based on the word of Jesus. This is genuine faith now. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Jesus now responds to the continuing appeal of the official. Now, we probably don't get every word that was spoken. Remember, the Gospels here are kind of a condensation. But now this, you know, he's probably talking to Jesus. Uh, Jesus finally tells him, Sir, come down before the, he says, come down before the child dies. And Jesus says, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So Jesus now responds to the continuing appeal of the official. The man accepts Jesus' words that his son would live. Unlike the Galileans, he does not need further signs and miracles. That's true, genuine faith, isn't it? Faith placed in Jesus himself, verses 51 through 54. While he was still on his way, on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Say the royal official's servants met him while he was on his way home with the wonderful news that his son was living. In fact, he had been healed at the very time Jesus has given his word. And this realization only strengthened his faith. So he believed Jesus. He took his at his word. He went home. This certainly would strengthen that faith. As a consequence, the, the, not only the royal official, but it says his household believed. I mean, the idea here is apparently that they became believers in Jesus, true believers, genuine believers here in Christ. Verse 54, this was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this healing of the official son was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed after coming to Galilee from Judea. It was not the second miracle in our Lord's career, but the second one to be performed in Galilee. Remember, uh, both of these are in Galilee, the, the turning the water to wine and now the healing of the royal official. This is the second sign that Jesus, that John wants to point out. John has seven of these that he builds his gospel around. Uh, as I say, John had noted previously in chapter 2, chapter 3, that Jesus did a number of miracles when he was there at the Passover. All right, we come now to chapter 5. The growth of unbelief. Beginning in chapter 5, the evangelist calls, uh, charts the shift in attitude about Jesus from mere reservation to outright opposition. We see the miracle at the pool, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. The setting of the miracle, verses 1 through 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So uh, we are coming here uh, to another Jewish festival. Notice I've got these in red here. Uh, that is, um, if we, we, we said that, um, well, I say, let me read what I say here. If we assume that it was the uh, the, next, the next miracle of Jesus took place at a festival of the Jews, but the festival is not otherwise identified. If we assume that it, it, it was the occurrence of this festival that brought him Jesus to Jerusalem, then it would probably be one of the three festivals of the year that required attendance at Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles. If this is Passover, then Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. So the first one we've already covered here, this would have been the 
Passover of AD 27. If this is another Passover, this would be the Passover of the spring of AD 28 down here. So this is where we are at right now, if, if we are correct. It's, you know, we said if, if, if this is a pass, if this verse here, 5 1, this, if this Jewish festival is a Passover, then probably Jesus' ministry is three and a half years long. And you probably, maybe you've heard people say Jesus ministered for three and a half years. Remember, we talked about this before. And the three and a half years comes from these uh, time markers in the Gospel of John that mentions Passover as Passover, Passover. This is not called a Passover, but if it is, then it would be the spring. This, is, this chart is showing a three-and-a-half-year ministry because we've got these Passovers here. This would be the Passover of 28 if we are correct in this chronology, but we're not positive about that. Uh, the previous Passover was uh, down here in verse two, chapter 2, verse 13. This would be chapter 5, verse 1, so forth. Um, Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So remember that uh, the Jews spoke both Hebrew and Aramaic. Their main language may have been this Aramaic language. Remember, it's very close to Hebrew, but when they went into Babylonian captivity, they picked up the a universal language of the Near East that was Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew. They came back. They tended to speak Aramaic uh, more probably than Hebrew. So this is the Bethesda. Remember, there's a town in Maryland, Bethesda. You heard probably Bethesda Naval Hospital, Bethesda. Bethesda, Maryland is named for, uh, as I understand it, for a, a church that was there, a Presbyterian church, the House of, the house of Prayer. Anyway, House of Mercy. Uh, Bethesda means something like the house of outpouring, the house of mercy. Uh, anyway, that's the name of it, Bethesda. And it's surrounded by five colonnades. Uh, it's, it's, it says uh, uh, it's near the Sheep Gate, and there's this pool with these five covered colonnades. Um, so uh, if you can see up here, the pool of Bethesda. Uh, we haven't talked as much about this, but this, is, this would be a, a layout of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. So there's the Temple Mount here. Remember, we showed pictures of this. I'll show you some more. The Court of the Gentiles, the Temple, and so forth. So Jerusalem has expanded. It was originally down here. Mount Zion is down here. And now it's expanded to the west and to the north and so forth. Um, so remember, that's the view as we're looking east. We looked at before, remember? <clears throat> and we see the temple proper here, right in the center. And to the north, so uh, we're looking east. To the north is the Fortress Antonia. And there, uh, to the north of the Temple Mount, is that... Um, this pool, this Bethesda, as it's called here, um, near the Sheep Gate there, near a gate of Jerusalem, is Bethesda. Um, as I say, today the commonest identification is northeast of the old city near the Church of St. Anne, near Nehemiah's Sheep Gate. Um, this is a model in Jerusalem uh, it's approximately correct. This one has more colonnades than five, so people have redrawn better drawn. But if this is similar. This would be similar to what was in, in, there in Jesus' day. Verse three: Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie: the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. I say a number of people with a variety of physical problems, blind, lame, and paralyzed, would gather at the pool because of the curative value which they felt was possessed by these waters. The man who will shortly be healed had this affliction for 38 years. Um, so, um, um, 
we're not told, uh, you know, whether he was paralyzed or lame or just weak. We're not told his exact affliction, but he had been incapacitated for a very long time, 38 years as we're told here. So he would apparently be well known to the community, whoever this man was. He'd been there known to them. We see the performance of the miracle, verses 6 through 9. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So in response to Jesus' question, do you want to get well, the man repeats the popular belief that the first person into the water after, they, after the waters are dis, dis, disturbed will be healed. Now, what disturbed the water is unclear. We don't really know. Some people say it, maybe it was some sort of intermediate, intermediate springs. Maybe this was fed by a spring that sometimes bubbled up and you had this disturbance of the water. Uh, there was one belief we know was that some people thought an angel came down. An angel came down and disturbed the waters, and whoever got into the water first got healed and so forth. We're not sure. Verse 8, when Jesus said to him, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. I say, Jesus' powerful word heals the man. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. The obedience of the man to the command of Jesus demonstrated the completeness of the miracle. You know, he didn't need any sort of physical therapy to strengthen his muscles or his limbs or anything. Uh, when he, Jesus healed him, it was just, you know, instantaneous restoration. I say John mentions parenthetically that the healing took place on, the, on a Sabbath. This sets the stage for the confrontation that follows. And one of the things we see in the Gospels here is... Jesus is, is criticized and confronted by Jewish leaders because he heals people on the Sabbath. And so that's going to be the next uh, thing we see is this charge of Sabbath violation. But I can see it's 816. <laughs> so I won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much for bearing with us tonight. Sorry we had some technical difficulties, but uh, we'll try to do better in the future. We may have to fire Larry, but, you know. <laughs> He'd love that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Thank you so much.